Spider-Man and Frankenstein's Monster. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Corey Drew. Taking you through a classic superhero team-up uh, for Halloween, Spider-Man and Frankenstein's Monster from Marvel Team-Up numbers uh, 36 and 37, cover dated August and September of 1975. And, and Corey, this is, this is our Halloween special, because Halloween is tomorrow. As the podcast flies. <laughs> Are you a big Halloween guy? You know, I love the holiday. I am, uh, like, uh, I'm a full-size candy bar giver outer at mm-hmm. my home. So, you know, I get a kick out of that. I'm not much of a costume guy. I like a sort of a minimalist kind of uh, postmodern kind of costume. One year I, I put a, a simple bow on my chest and I had the words for God to women written on myself. So it was like a, you know, God's gift to women kind of punny kind of costume. I, I don't like to put a whole lot of effort into it. <laughs> More thought than effort is is my uh, general rule of thumb. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I I don't like anything that's like too bulky or so very often I'll make like a, a print for a t-shirt or something that mm-hmm. will be th- this kind of play on whatever theme. Usually there's like a our Halloweens tend to have themes for the costume parties, so I, I'll I'll sort of try to cheat. Let's <laughs> let's call it <laughs> yeah. cheating because that's Agreed. what it is. Yeah, working within the rules, but not you know necessarily you know more the word of the rule than the spirit of the rule. Right. One year I went, I just simply had a name tag on that said "Hello, my name is" and I said point one four one five seven nine. I was a piece of pie. <laughs> I enjoy uh, a head scratcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think one of my favorites is probably I printed out the vortex from Doctor Who. Uh-huh. The blue that I put on the front and the red on the back. I had a little, a little TARDIS that I put on a, a fishing pole thing. So it was like sort of wobbling in front of me, in front of the <laughs> vortex. And, you know, That's awesome. <laughs> my, my type of costume. Uh, although I don't usually keep the doors open for kids. Uh, these days, I don't think, not a lot of kids. Just go to random houses. So it's mm-hmm. more like you go to houses, your parents' friends and that kind of thing, or your friends' parents. And, right. uh, so, so that just doesn't really happen for me in, in this yeah. neighborhood. I don't keep candy. Yeah. I live in a really small neighborhood. I get maybe half a dozen to a dozen trick or treaters. I literally just have a little table up at the end of my driveway with like spooky decorations on it and a bowl and a sign that says, please take one. And, uh, you know, I'll be darned that they do just take one. Like you'd think somebody would, some, you know, nefarious little gremlin would come up and be like, oh, hey, a whole bowl of candy just for me. <laughs> you know, but no, they don't. They're honest. They, it's like clerks. They think someone's watching them. <laughs> yeah, or maybe. I was talking to, to Shag earlier today from our network, of course, the Redeemable Shag. And part of his redemption duties, I guess, is uh, he, he doesn't give candy. He gives uh, mini comics. Oh, that's awesome. So he gets these comics from me. He has to order them in July because that's when Diamond Previews tells you to order them. So he has to think about it like, uh, you know, four or five months in advance. But uh, there's like, like little Archies and that kind of thing that uh, he hands out. And uh, they, I guess they're pretty popular. I mean, that's really cool. I think as like an 11-year-old, I'd be furious. But like as an adult, <laughs> I think that's really cool. It's better than we used to get. Um, there was a couple of people in my neighborhood who gave out pencils, toothbrushes, and, uh, and chick tracks. So I don't—is that a thing? Do you have chick tracks? I don't Canada? know. What, I don't know what that is. They are tiny little uh, conservative uh, Christian, and, and I mean that's 
pushing the boundaries of both of those words, little comics that are like, oh. you know, if you enjoy horror movies, you're going to hell, and here's what hell looks like. <laughs> okay, yeah, I've seen some of those. I didn't know that's what the, they were called. We've had, like, um, let's say these, um, I'll call them cults, because that, what, that's what they were classified as uh, on campus when I was a student. One of these would uh, just slip these little comics where inevitably people would end up being thrown into the lake of fire at the end. Oh, yeah, uh, always. It, yeah, in, in your lockers. So I, I've, I've seen them. That's what they're called. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And they're named after a guy. I, I used to have a lot more information on them than I do now, but <laughs> that, that's faded out of my brain. But I do watch a lot of horror movies during the month of October. That's, I guess, Same. the main celebration. And uh, I just, for this podcast, I mean, just like, it's not research or anything, just to get me in the mood, I did watch three Frankenstein movies consecutively, so I feel like I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was always really drawn to Frankenstein when I was a kid. The, the movies themselves, they somehow they seemed less frightening to me than the, uh, the Dracula movies. Hmm. I mean, there's some body horror to it, but it's not necessarily <laughs> the same. Let's get into it. In each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Corey, you get first pick. So I'm taking Frankenstein, Team Frankenstein, all the way. All right. Well, I'll take Spider-Man. And as is customary, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the characters we've chosen. Corey, what's so great about Frankenstein's monster? Well, he's the original Ben Grimm. You know, he's tragic. He's powerful. He's empathetic. And, you know, in this particular venue, he's delightfully counterpunctal to um, Spidey's, like, quippy bon vivant. And like Spidey, his creation is a direct result of man's quest to understand the mysteries of the universe, right? Like, Spider-Man was bitten by the radioactive spider, you know, in a scientific experiment, and Frankenstein was created by... Again, another scientific experiment. So I thought they went well uh, with each other. And that sort of made me want to look at it through the Frankenstein lens. And uh, Siskoid, what's one thing you like about Spider-Man? I mean, we talk about Spider-Man all the time on this show, uh, necessarily, because he had his own team-up book. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. This time I'll do uh, like the Halloween thing, which is to talk about the, the power that Spider-Man has that nobody ever talks about. Uh, they talk about it, but they don't talk about it as being part of his power set. And that's the proportional creepiness of the spider. Right. We often see this in the comics. I mean, people think he's kind of creepy, or in the comics or movies for that matter. But, uh, you know, sometimes people have an adverse reaction to him. There's something that on the page, as readers, we don't necessarily see. Uh, because, you know, we're not there, but that his posture, maybe something about his costume, the way he, he moves, there's something creepy about him. And many people in the comics seem to have that, that reaction to him, which I think is interesting. And I mean, ultimately it's J. Jonah Jameson branding him as a villain or a menace. Sure. He's a monster. He's a monster. So, uh, yeah. that's why he hides his face. You know, that's, there's something Spider-Man, you know, this, the idea that the spider is something that's creepy to me, spiders are, you know, good natured. <laughs> creatures as far as I, you know as far as my personal ecosystem goes i hate right. flies and bugs and so spiders you know uh, have a, a duty to perform in the house agreed i do not kill yeah. you know i don't kill spiders i'm Stimulatic not a spider. relationship yeah. yeah so of course i'm drawn to spider-man to me a spider is a, a beneficial thing but to J. Jonah jameson he probably jumps on the chair when he sees a spider you know? <laughs> i expect so yeah he probably has like a, tra a, a traumatic event in his childhood a la batman in the cave that you know 
damaged him. <laughs> I wonder if, like, to go on your um, proportional creepiness of the spider idea, I wonder if it's an unwritten sort of inverse of the spidey sense. Like, he's just radiating creepy vibes out into the world. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I, I Personally, I'd probably write a story, if I were to write Spider-Man, I'd probably write a story where that that's addressed, uh, where there's that's kind of true. So it's like he senses danger, but he projects danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that'd be an interesting... I mean, I don't want to give him full-on fear powers, but there is something to that, I think. That's, yeah. uh, and, and people aren't afraid of spiders, the Mary Janes and so forth, you know, <laughs> the black right. cats don't have that problem. It's like, it's a very specific kind of tingling that he sends out. And, uh, and I guess the uh, lesson learned there is that the the sexier you are, the less likely you are to be afraid of his, uh, <laughs> his creepiness. Well, uh, Spider-Man has, is on the show all the, all the time. He needs no introduction. Uh, but let's talk about Frankenstein's monster's uh, publication history. He's been in books and movies and in comics. So uh, can you uh, act as the expert here? Yeah, sure. I can put my expert hat on. So originally, the novel was published anonymously, in fact, in 1818. And uh, Mary Shelley's definitive work was the result of a weeks-long vacation during the coldest summer Europe had known for centuries. It was actually under, well, ostensibly a volcanic winter. A volcano had exploded, and it made Europe just really cold during the summer, which, you know, was a bummer for everybody who had put in their time off or whatever. It was uh, written as part of a contest uh, between the man she would eventually make her husband, Percy Shelley, and uh, Lord Byron. They were vacationing together, as they did. And it was written shortly after, well, within two years of her sister having committed suicide uh, and the death of an infant that she had had. Uh, And it preceded the death of another infant. So it's, you know, it's existence as a tragedy and her obsession, for lack of a better word, with death at that time. It makes perfect sense. Uh, before the second edition could even be published, it was immediately adapted into a stage play called Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein, which, you know, is aptly named as the fate of Frankenstein would be to be adapted and reprinted endlessly over the next 200 years. By 1910, it had landed on film. Then again, in 1915, 1920, 1931, presented arguably the most iconic visualization via the auspices of Universal Studios and Boris Karloff. From there, it was spun off, reimagined, rebooted, and warped into an almost endless supply of mad scientist monster duos, creating tropes and cliches of their own along the way. Uh, Almost everyone has seen they have a version of Frankenstein they think of when the name is mentioned. And please note, I do say Frankenstein. I don't say Frankenstein's monster. Uh, The name of the monster and the creator have more or less become synonymous with one another, which I find fitting as the central question asked by the work is, who really is the monster anyway? Plus, uh, brainy people at universities say it's okay now. So I'm going to go with their word. Well, if he's the son of Frankenstein, he is also a Frankenstein, right? Very good point. My version of Frankenstein is is from Hammer Films, uh, as portrayed by Christopher Lee. Many Saturday afternoon creature double features were spent fearing and feeling for uh, Sir Christopher's rendition. Uh, my second runner-up is Frankie of Hanna-Barbera's Drac Pack, <laughs> a, a descendant of the original monster, in, you know, interestingly answering a question of what human capabilities the resurrected patchwork man would in fact have, a question I never actually asked until this moment. Of course, comics were rife with presentations of Frankenstein pretty much since the beginning, uh, appearing as both a hero and a villain in both comical and more earnest efforts. The idea of monsters fits easily into any 
comic book universe, which is why in 1968, Roy Thomas dropped him into the midst of the X-Men as an alien android who had been in suspended animation since the 1800s. And then in 1973, they created the uh, Marvel's The Monster of Frankenstein, which ultimately reimagined the monster as a fighter of international evil organizations a la James Bond. And uh, two years later, he shows up to throw up, ready to throw elbows uh, with our favorite wall crawler, thanks to Jerry Conway and Sal Buscema. You know, honestly, that's I feel like more sentences should start that way. Introduced <laughs> by Jerry Conway and Sal Buscema. <laughs> yeah, and this series would last like 15 issues or something, or is it more? Yeah, I, I'm not sure of the Couple exact years. number. With only a couple of years, it was out of it was done by the time this issue existed. The mm-hmm. the initial run of it was five issues that were more or less a pretty earnest retelling of of a Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Then they decided to make him more of a you know GI Joe fights Cobra kind of guy. So he wakes up like later and <laughs> it becomes like a sort of antihero or hero or kind of like Swamp Thing or you know that that would be the the sort of yeah. model for these kinds of stories. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think in DC, Frankenstein is used a little more definitively heroically, especially in the in the early 2000s with the the Seven Soldiers and everything. Yeah, he's uh, like the, a super agent. Yeah, he's yeah he's like an agent of Shield. It's like Frankenstein agent. I, in he, fact, I it's agent of Shade. Shade, that's <laughs> right. Thank you. Yeah. So that's subtle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That, that that series is pretty cool too. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's like the Gonzo. It's like I Frankenstein. You know, uh, if we look mm-hmm. at movies, it's more of that kind of thing where it's uh, let's make him a superhero, and the bride shows up, and she's also mm-hmm. a superhero, and you know. So, but but this the Marvels. Frankenstein's monster, he's more like the one in the Universal movies. Well, actually, in fact, he reminds me of the one from Hammer Films, at least visually. You know, he's got that same Beatles haircut, <laughs> uh, and he's white and pale. Visually speaking, I, I definitely get a Hammer Film vibe from him. But yeah, but ostensibly, he's, you know, he's the Frankenstein's monster we're all comfortable with, we all know. Well, it would make sense it'd be the, the Hammer Horror one, because that would have been more or less the contemporary one. True story, yeah. And I, I think, uh, not to get too far ahead, but I, I think you see shades of the Incredible Hulk in his backstory and in his possibly more the Incredible Hulk, the TV series. But I'm not even sure that that was around at that point. No, not yet, not. yeah. But they definitely had that sad, lonely... Fugitive. Yeah, you know, monster alone kind of story. Let's get into that story. The The two issues... We're looking at, there were like 17 pagers back in the day. Uh, in the 70s, they were trying to cut down on uh, on costs uh, with smaller <laughs> page counts. Uh, but I think the stories, you know, they, they weren't so decontracted either. So you have a lot of story packed into those pages. So we'll just uh, do a bit of a synopsis. The first issue is called Once Upon a Time in a Castle by writer Jerry Conway, artist Salbisima, and embellisher Vince Coletta. <laughs> The streets of New York. Two crooks rob a savings and loans. Spider-Man is on the scene to punch them into submission. But then a strange green beam comes out of the sky and strikes Spidey in the back. The crooks run. Spidey passes out. 
and wakes up strapped to a table next to a pale behemoth covered in stitches and garbed in purple and fur. The monster stares, I would say pensively, into the middle distance. The room is resplendent in traditional mid-century gothic mad scientist. Spidey doesn't need special senses to work out where he is. He just needs to have seen a horror movie at any time in the past 60 years, a fact he comments on during his expositional exclamation. Spidey sees the monster and jokingly describes him as an escapee from a modern freak show tourist trap. The monster quietly corrects him, advising him that he too is a prisoner. The man responsible for their captivity enters. He is Baron Ludwig von Stupf, but we may call him the monster maker. And he's not a mad scientist. He's just a scientist. He's not mad. Honest. As he reaches for Spider-Man's mask, Spidey kicks him in the gut and breaks his metal bonds. He webs up Von Stupf and his men and frees the man-monster next to him. They both jump through a window into the fresh Balkan air. As they escape and hide from skiing henchmen, Frankenstein reveals to Spider-Man his story, his creation at the hands of Dr. Frankenstein, his fundamental misunderstanding of humanity, his murder of his creator, and his journey through the world, being hated and feared everywhere he went. Somehow he ends up in goo, waiting for a hundred years to be awakened by a groovy Caucasian couple at, of all places, a sideshow, making Spidey's earlier comments oddly prescient. He then details how he came to blows with Count Dracula, made a friend, and then fought some clones, something about which Spidey knows all too much. Spider-Man uses his opportunity to show off what might be his most useful superpower, the ability to take almost anything in stride and just go with the flow. A flow that is suddenly pierced by a woman's scream from off in the distance. Peter Parker and Frankenstein deftly move across the snow to see a beautiful blonde skier about to fall into the clutches of the Baron's bronze medal runner-up winter biathlon thugs. Never having met a damsel in distress they didn't want to rescue, they silently confirmed their intentions and leapt into battle. Quickly defeating the evil Winter Olympians, the monster notices the lady he fully intends to rescue falling backwards into a ravine. Rapidly, the monster catches her in mid-fall and pulls her back up onto the snow. Taking a moment to catch her breath, the hapless victim stands back up to thank the pair with a blast of knockout gas. Spidey and his amazing friend go down. Thirteen ominous minutes later, the heroes wake up in a cozy lodge with this woman. She introduces herself as Agent Clemmer of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury assigned her to stop Von Stupp's plans for world domination thanks to an army of monsters with superpowers combining Frank and Spidey's abilities. Spider-Man offers his help, but as the mission will require stealth, Clemmer and Spidey tell Frank to stay behind. They head back to the castle. Spider-Man on a swing line, Clemmer on skis. Frankenstein once again proves he's no one's mindless automaton and seeing the ski trails opts to follow them, albeit not as quickly as his comrades. Clemmer and Spider-Man are already there and with the latter's powers, disabling the guards and entering through a high window is child's play. Frank suspiciously approaches an open gate to the Baron's castle and presses through into the courtyard where he wanders past a fallen guard. It's here his suspicions begin to take a more defined shape, as the security presence feels far too minimal for Frank's liking. Frankenstein opens the castle door, and he can hear the Mad Baron talking at the end of the corridor. The monster races toward the voice, leading with his fists and taking down a squad of the Baron's commandos. He listens to the monster maker's words as he approaches his lab. The Baron caught up in a fit of exposition detailing his plans. Frankenstein barges into the lab, once again having fallen into a trap. This shock, however, is immediately surpassed by the shock of finding the Baron flanked by Spider-Man and Clemmer, and his shock grows further still as the Baron presents another captured element of his diabolical scheme, the snarling bestial man-wolf. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. 
It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It got on in a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. In part two, entitled Snow Death. At the Monster Maker's command, Man-Wolf jumps at Spider-Man, and the creature, who used to be James Jameson, soon overwhelms him. Frankenstein once again proves his mettle by simply grabbing the lycanthropic astronaut by the scruff of his neck and yanking him off Spider-Man. Bemoaning their state as enemies when they should be allies against a common foe, Frankenstein nevertheless hurls the Man-Wolf at a wall, stunning him briefly but not stopping him. The Man-Wolf runs for Clemmer, grabs her, and bounds through a stained glass window out into the freezing air. Spider-Man, briefly marveling at the newfound intensity of Manuel's powers, leads Frankenstein toward the window, only to find himself zapped, once again, in the back, and falling to the ground. The monster maker drops Frankenstein as well, cackling about how he had taken advantage of their momentary distraction. Later, the super monstrous duo awake, seemingly back in Chapter 2 of Part 1 again, strapped to the standard-issue Mad Scientist treadmill. Frank is having none of it. He hates being bound, and he says so, in the form of a threat to the Baron. Spidey has questions, though, and demands the Baron explain himself, cleverly triggering the exposition reflex all B-grade supervillains have. The Baron explains, while firing up his laser dissector, that his quest to make monsters is one of revenge, against the fear and mocking of intellect and the cruelty the world inflicts upon nerds as a result, a cruelty that brings him to tears. Spider-Man decries the villain is crazy and seemingly hurt. The monster maker tells Spidey, in so many terms, you don't know me, you don't know nothing about me. Vindicated once again in his mission, the monster maker lets loose the laser dissectors on our gruesome twosome. Meanwhile, in the snowy woods outside the castle, Clemmer plays the damsel in distress so the man-wolf won't see her as a threat. He fights off a hungry pack of wolves for her, and as he returns to her side, she realizes he means for her to be his mate. So she manipulates him into thinking she's hungry, so he'll go foraging, during which time she makes a run for it. When the wolf returns with a rabbit in hand, she's gone. Strapped to a conveyor belt, Spidey and Frank move slowly toward the beams that will chop them up into their component parts. Frankenstein, having had quite enough, digs his lifeless hand into the tread of the treadmill and into the gears, halting their forward movement. Spider-Man then fires his web shooters at a laser emitter and diverts it so it slices through his metal bonds. After he and Frank are freed, they creep up the stairs to find Von Stuff asleep over his notes, dreaming happy dreams of people liking him or else. A rude awakening later, he finds himself wrapped in webbing and breaks down crying. Spider-Man races off to find Clemmer, but comes across the Man-Wolf first. They fight. Man-Wolf gets his licks in. Spidey's a little dazed. A woman scream. Man-Wolf runs to his mate. Spidey tries to prevent him from reaching her, but fails. She's been surrounded by wolves, and Man-Wolf comes to her defense again. The pack routed, she approaches the wounded werewolf, his plight melting her heart. But the creature falls down a snowy cliff and Clemmer shouts at the stunned Spider-Man to save him. His webs reach Man-Wolf just in time to break his fall. As Clemmer gets her shield buddies to wrap up Man-Wolf and the Monster Maker, she and Spider-Man discuss Man-Wolf's plight, empathizing with being seen as a monster when you're really just a man, being lonely. The spy and the spider talk about their own loneliness and the sadness that it brings. They do this all with an easy earshot of a 200-year-old reanimated corpse puzzle who hasn't been able to maintain a relationship past the first posse with burning torches. Realizing once again the people he thought would understand him simply cannot, he quietly slides away out of panel. As the webhead, the shield agent, and the various extras leave the Balkans via chopper, recognizing how insensitive they had been to a misunderstood homunculus. Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> that was not only Spider-Man and uh, the monster Frankenstein, but also Spider-Man and Man-Wolf, two issues, yeah. so they had to have two headliners. But really, Man-Wolf is more of an antagonist, and Frank remains the hero, you know, the the guest hero of both comics. So what do we think of this story? Well, in general, it's fun. I guess with most, uh, or many, I shouldn't say most, many of the Marvel team-ups, I think the novelty is more the point than telling a good story, perhaps. Um, I think, uh, like, the first scene uh, with Spidey in New York, that felt just like stock footage they had laying around, that they just sort of tacked, not stock footage, stock art that they had, uh, and they, they just sort of tacked it on at the beginning so that they could give the story three parts and give him a, a reason to be... You know, in uh, you know, I said the Balkans. I I want to say maybe they they said it was Bavaria. I, I don't I don't know where any of this is. So yeah, some <laughs> sort guess. of European yeah. wintry capital, um, Eastern Bloc sort of. Yeah. yeah, that's in any case he gets there. I guess there's a teleportation beam. It's it's very odd that it's just like the beam hits him, it stuns him, and then somehow he's teleported. Couldn't the beam just have teleported him straight, and then it's like he looks like he's been vaporized or something? I wasn't sure if it was the beam was teleporting them or if the beam was just rendering him unconscious, and then he was gathered up, uh, presumably by these, you know, winter Olympians, and then brought to where they were going. Uh, Well, there's a caption that says... Uh, when he wakes up, it's a few moments later. Oh, that's a good point. So, and yeah, then so later there is a mention of a teleportation beam in the second issue. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yep. So it's it's a longer trip going back home than it was getting there. It's it's the usual mad scientist stuff where I've got this very complicated plan that requires all these things, but the my means to do these things seems like it would be enough, you know, to cause chaos. You want to take over the world? You've got a teleportation beam that can just nab <laughs> anyone from anywhere. Right. Yeah, I know. You know, and, you know, just in this discussion, I just realized that right there is two of the G.I. Joe miniseries animated specials from the early 1980s, right? Like the teleportation beam that they're trying to build. And then, you know, a few years later, they're trying to gather up all the genetic material to build Serpentor. So maybe somebody read this and was like, this guy's already got all he needs to take over the world. (laughs) I'm going to write a G.I. Joe series about it. Yeah, because like the the actual plan is to create a super army that in the flash forward, because it never happens in the fantasy of uh, the monster maker, they just look like uh, manuals, right? It's it's not like there there's no interest in making him look. You know, part Frankenstein's monster, part spider, part Mm-mm. a missed opportunity, I think. Yeah, and I, I feel like there is just an awful lot of overlap there in terms of powers, like. What does Spidey bring to it? The I mean, unless it's an error, unless the monster maker thinks that 1975 Peter Parker is Tobey Maguire and he can shoot these webs organically, like Spider-Man doesn't necessarily bring a whole lot to the table that the other two don't already have. Well, you see the the wolves wall climbing. He brings that, I guess. Presumably, people don't really know about the spider sense. It's not something like a supervillain would right. would know about. Or even Frankenstein's monster. What does Frankenstein's monster bring when all these guys are super strong and tough? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess he brings the fact that he, you know, is immortal. He's not really immortal because, well, yeah, I guess he is. I mean, he's living again. I don't, you know, I've, I've never been real sure about, you know, in any variation what, I mean, in, in the novel, he's alive. He has been brought to life. He's not undead in any kind of way. No. 
you're not given any reason in the, in the in the novel to think that his life has any longer or shorter a span than anybody any newborn's life would have you know so in the movies he's endlessly resurrectable right is what it seems to be that like the putrefaction at least has stopped but like uh i watched one of the movies i watched this week was a son of frankenstein which was like the last mm-hmm. boris karloff universal film of that era and uh in that they say he is immortal i guess yeah i i mean it's it's a reasonable leap right like you've created artificial life it's that's you know powered by lightning or you know whatever uh it's a reasonable leap to think that there you know he can't die I, you know i don't see why you if i were a writer and i was given frankenstein as a character to incorporate into a comic book i would be like yeah he's immortal that's cool we can do that yeah i guess uh, it's a superhero uh, thing to do right and i guess that is what he would offer in this particular setting but they with man wolf and perhaps they don't know this but i mean his He's not in control of his abilities at this point. So, you know, it's random. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, he may be a genius, but I think that he's um, not necessarily uh, thinking it through. <laughs> no, he is a mad scientist, whatever he says. And and that's yeah. that's part of the, I mean, thematically, all these things work together. You know, a lot of the these crazy team-ups, the crazier team-ups, the ones I most like, seem to be... We've put names and words into a hat, and then we're picking things at random, and they we have to fit them together. It's Spider-Man doesn't really match with Frankenstein's monster, uh, but in the Spider-Man lore, there is a werewolf. Oh, werewolves are you know, a universal monster, so is Frankenstein. Let's get that in there, and then let's set it in Bavaria, one of these places. Bavaria, Bohemia, you know, Latveria would count, I guess. But one of these countries... Latveria would be perfect. Yeah, yeah, one of these countries where these movies all seem to happen, these stories all seem to happen. And uh, teleportation beam, because we got to get Spider-Man from New York to that setting... To have, swing there. Yeah, yeah, to have the creepy castle, and let's put a mad scientist as, as as the villain, which is all thematically proper. That's actually aspects of it that I loved. Like, I adored how just simply, immediately evident everything was. Like, you didn't need any explanation. You know, you're just like, oh, there's trapped your table, I see what's going on here. And I liked that. I liked that they took the tropes and they and they used them to their advantage. Just was like, okay, we don't have to do a lot of, of selling of this background. You know what it is. You know what I mean? You know outside of this castle, it's wintry. It's fine. We don't need to explain it. And I liked that. I thought that was... That was cool. And I actually did enjoy the moments of, you know, Frankenstein showing his his history. You know, it's still a little muddy how certain things happened along the way, but that's okay. I mean, it doesn't need to be explained. I was a little disappointed, I think, in the presence of the man-wolf, just because I feel like Frankenstein really didn't get to do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, he gets sidelined, especially in the second part. Right, and man-wolf gets like this whole really weird side story, twas beauty that killed the beast kind of thing, and I was just like... um, Well, that's part of the werewolf mythos, I guess. I mean, it's it's sort of, it's creepy. It's especially creepy today, I guess. Uh, But the idea that the werewolf represents, and that this is true in many of the films or stories that use werewolves, is the beast inside every man. So it does uh, sometimes have that that connotation of the the, the sexual assaulter. Right. And, and we get that here. Yeah, yeah. I, I applaud them from maybe veering away from that, you know, more than I think possibly in the mid-90s they might not have. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they definitely went that direction, but they also went the provider direction as well, you know, so they tried to maybe balance out the creepiness with a little bit of 
positivity and empathy because the look on his face when he comes back with a rabbit like anybody saw a dog like that they'd be heartbroken <laughs> you know what i mean like they <laughs> they were definitely trying to redeem his character i guess uh, yeah. in that respect because it is james jameson i mean it, he's not supposed to be a, a villainous character he's an ally yeah they might also have used werewolf by night but uh, although he would have been maybe more but you know all these anti-heroes from the 70s those horror anti-heroes which frankenstein is is one of them have to be you know still have to be positive figures and you know it it does you're right it does feel like manwolf is sort of stealing frankenstein's thunder you know he's playing the same role the the misunderstood monster yeah it's identical and that's also a part of you know frankenstein's story is the inability to connect with women in particular, uh, mm-hmm. because that's his orientation. He apparently came back to life as a, at least a heterosexual. They even build him a wife at some point in the film lore, at any rate, repeatedly. And as I discovered in Drac Pack, he had children. Apparently he created descendants. So it would have been an interesting, you know, kind of like I would have enjoyed seeing, you know, Frankenstein making a connection with Clemmer. Uh, I guess that takes away from his, you know, brooding off into the distance ending, which I'm sure that they felt was more emotionally impactful, but I, I didn't, I hate to say that I would want Clemmer to have been included to become like a love interest, but I am of the opinion that the entire Clemmer subplot could have gone and it would have been thrilling to me. I find it a little distasteful, especially the stuff with Manwolf. If I, you know, as a kid, I wouldn't have, and possibly as an adult in 1975, it might not have triggered anything, but as an adult in 2018, I'm like, this is kind of, it's kind of weird, guys. Like, she's supposed to be a tough agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and she's manipulating you with her lady wiles and she's, <laughs> and she's, you know, playing the damsel in distress repeatedly. And, you know, even at one point when Man Wolf takes her, she shouts out, help Spider-Man. It's like, you're an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., ma'am. <laughs> yeah. There, there are thoughts in her head that she's faking some of this playing the damsel in distress, but, yeah. uh, but it's still, that's what it looks like. I can't help but imagine what if, uh, this wasn't, it's Marvel team up. It's gotta have a different guest star every time or most of the time. But if they kept it to Frankenstein's monster each time, like, like a two-parter, or a, if this had been like a double-sized issue. So you have no man wolf. I mean, this story would have been very different because you would have used the, the Frankenstein tropes and, uh, Clemmer would have died and Frankenstein's monster would have been on the hook for it. Right. Regardless of his actual guilt. So it's a good thing Manwolf was there because that that allowed her to to survive. Not that she ever appears again. This issue in particular, they do something really interesting and really uh, kind of similar to like Dial H for Hero. They're like literally just throwing stuff against the wall and like let's see what sticks. Let's see what people respond to. Let's see what people enjoy. Like something like this would be really interesting contemporarily. You know, a, a, a modern story told with modern sensibilities and in a modern way. I think you could go a long way with Spider-Man and Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's monster and an agent of shield. Like these are things I can definitely see a life for, you know, even I can envision some 1975 alternate universe where Clemmer and the monster do go off together and have like, you know, adventures, you know, beauty and the beast style, (laughs) putting a character that you just don't anticipate seeing throwing down with, you know, superheroes that's cool it creates a really neat idea that you can explore in a lot of ways but frankenstein is uh, we've been primed for his uh, unusual team-ups 
because in movies he's teamed up with Dracula mm-hmm. and the Wolfman, and and he's teamed up with Abbott and Costello. I mean, there's Abbott and Costello, yeah. yeah. So Spider Man is just like another in the list. You you said the word throwdown, and I, I go back to the, the first cover of this team. Uh-huh. We didn't talk about the covers, uh, but the cover is a big lie. Where big fat lie? Because it's yeah. Spider Man and Frankenstein's monster fighting. Now, do you wish that? There had been more of this, you know, the Marvel cliche of the heroes fighting it out before they uh, they actually team up? Or is it even a bit strange that the monster looking like he does, and I guess the circumstances allow for it, but that Spider-Man doesn't think of him as a monster? I mean, Spider-Man immediately allies with him. There's no thought in his head that this guy might be a monster or dangerous or a villain in his own right. Yeah, I mean, from a in in-universe explanation i would say if spidey's spidey sense wasn't tingling next to him Mm. then he could be like all right i can trust this guy to answer the first question no i don't need to see the central protagonists beat the fluff out of each other for a while and then be like hey this is silly we should be friends or at least tacit allies i never need that again in my life to be honest with you um so so i'm glad that it wasn't there there are iterations, including the original, where Frankenstein is intelligent and sensitive and aware of people. You know, he's empathetic. You know, he he has empathy. Like, he can tell right away, this is a person I can trust. This is not a person I can trust. So I, I was kind of glad that they were just like, yeah, we're just going to do away with that. We're just going to have the um, the nice you know, thoughtful, sensitive, quiet, reanimated monster from the book, as opposed to, I, and I don't mean to demean Boris Karloff's contribution, but as opposed to the mindless arms out in front, stomping kind of Hulk smash kind of monster. And now that I think about it, I, I like my Spidey explanation. <laughs> that is, his Spidey sense wasn't tingling, so he was like, yeah, we're cool. He's having problems with the the spider sense, though, because... That beam that hits him in the back? Yeah, he doesn't sense that coming. No, that's, that's out of nowhere. <laughs> so, uh, hmm, I felt like, well, this sort of, it happens because the story needs it to happen, but right. I, I didn't quite believe in that. I, I want to talk a little bit about the villain, the monster maker, uh, just because he's such a cartoonish kind of yeah. sort. I don't know if this is, it's like a weird, oblique reference to young Frankenstein in a sense, because He's called Von Stupf, which is yeah. like well, just one letter away from uh, the uh, the Madeline Kahn character in Blazing Saddles. Right. I mean, it's the, it's a stooping joke. Obviously, it's a sex yep. joke. Uh, there's even like a panel where you can take everything he says as particularly pornographic. Put it on the website, not necessarily comment on it here, but uh, in words, in case somebody's listening <laughs> to this, you know, in the car with their kids. But right. although that's not a good idea on any of my shows, if, if you know the <laughs> others. Uh, but yeah, Von Stupp. Uh, so I wonder, is this a Mel Brooks reference, you think? Uh, it has to be, right? Like, I mean, look at the timing. Blazing Saddles came out, what, 74? And this is 75, yeah. This is still in the theaters at this point, right? Like, because movies stayed around in theaters forever. In fact, I know it was because it was one of the first films that I ever saw in a movie theater, at a drive-in movie theater, actually. So movies stayed around for a long time. So this was really in the cultural imagination at this point. It, uh, it's got to be. I mean, there's so much tongue-in-cheek double entendre in these two issues that you know these guys were they were playing they were having fun i 100 percent believe that it's a reference to her young frankenstein was in 74 so they both came out that year yeah well there you go yeah they probably saw both of them and like hey let's stick them together (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I that was my when I even before we discussed it, I like I re, I I was reading it. I'm like Von Stuff. <laughs> what <laughs> is there going to be a scene of him eating like a sausage behind a curtain? <laughs> like I would have died. That would have been that would have made my life. <laughs> I'm tired, sick, and tired of love. One of the things I thought like the villains motivation like oh they're mean to me because i'm smart like that was my experience as a child like you know i i liked more intellectual things than i enjoyed physical things and people were mean to me for it right uh i think a lot of your listeners and certainly a lot of people in 1975 reading this comic book probably could have related to that and it was interesting because at no point would i as a child or i as an adult have been like on that guy's side Right. Like, even though he's like fighting for the cause, I'd be like, oh, no, you're a weirdo. You're not you're not cool. You're not helping things at all. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, I wasn't sure if it you know, I, I tend to read a lot of meta intention into things when I read them. As I was reading it, I was wondering, is this, you know, their slap or maybe even homage to the burgeoning nerd culture of the time, you know, like I was just like, what's this about here? Like they're making this person a very clear representative of, you know, the air quote nerd. And it was just kind of funny to me that they chose to do that. Uh, you know, the story itself, it isn't much of one. I mean, let's be honest, like there's not a lot of, a lot to it. It's a lot of fluff, but it's a lot of fun too. So I'm not mad at having, spent the time reading and dissecting it. I, I feel better for having done it. Yeah, poor Monster Maker was sort of a... You know, it reminds me of the Superboy Prime of the 2000s, where yes. there's a crybaby, uh, yep. life's not fair, uh, and he makes... You know, the, the idea that he makes monsters, just like just like Superboy Prime is like trying to transform continuity, I guess. It's the same sort of idea where I want to make my own things and I want to blow up my toys and you could definitely picture him being a kid with, you know, a subscription if they did this at the time to famous monsters of filmland. You know what I mean? Like like there, he's there collecting like- he's collecting monsters. He's like a collector. Yeah. He's collected three man monsters or you know. Mm-hmm. There may be something to that. They're supposed to be representative of the worst of comics fandom. It could be, you know, it could it could have been there. You know, have you kissed a girl moment from Saturday Night Live for uh, Shatner? Shatner. Yeah, (laughs) could be, could be. We'll never know. We won't know. (laughs) (laughs) We can assume, but we'll never know. (laughs) Jerry Conway, write us, tell us. Yeah, if you're listening, please tell us. Yes, I I would surmise that Jerry Conway does not remember writing this story. I mean, sure. maybe he's got he's got some pretty clear recollections uh, when you see him uh, in interviews. So, and this one may have stuck out to him. Like, how many other you know Spider-Man versus Frankenstein pieces did he do? You know, like you're gonna recognize it. All right, this is the piece of the show where we talk about who fared better between our two main stars. First of all, how well does this fit each of their stories or atmospheres? So is this more of a Spider-Man story or is it more of a Frankenstein's monster story? I think that it is Spider-Man in Frankenstein's setting. I would I would give Spider-Man the points on this. He all the glory moves are his, all of the uh the people in distress scream out for his help because I, I would have given it to frank science monster up to a point because it is his setting it's the universal monster tropes and mm-hmm. uh, and spider-man is sort of the sore thumb sticking out but at the same time because of the man wolf half of the story frankenstein's monster isn't enough in it for it to be his story whereas spider-man right. is there throughout and man wolf is one of his supporting cast it tilts it in the spider-man camp for yeah. sure what about cool moves 
What is Frank's coolest move? Well, he only has one. He jams his hand through that treadmill and into the gears, and they show his hand moving into the machinery, which I think is really, really cool. Like, you know, he's like, clearly a part of his toughness, perhaps, is that he doesn't sense pain in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Or if it's even more heroic, if he does, right? So he just, he's like, well, all I have to work with is my massive body. So, boom. You know, he does the uh, hence sabotage move and sticks his hand right into the gears and makes it so it doesn't uh, work anymore. I think that was pretty boss. Uh, Spider-Man has sort of, during that same moment, has his own coolest move, which is to redirect the lasers. But uh, I do like in that uh, stock footage, as he called it, uh, where he uh, punches the trash can into a guy. Yeah. That was really cool, yeah. That's a good Sal Buscema action bit, you know? Yeah, and that's something I want to see in the movies. Yeah, that'd be neat. That'd be neat. Uh, what about yeah. dumb or weird moves? They always happen in these things. Uh, what is Frank's dumbest move? I would say it's the same as his coolest move. It's grinding his hand into the inner working of the treadmill. Like, it's really cool, but at the same time, from a practical perspective, theoretically, his hand should have come out all ground up. You know what I mean? All bent and mangled. It didn't, as it happens, or at least they never they never showed it. So maybe he's, you know, made of dense molecules or something. I'm not sure. Whatever Marvel's explanation for it would be. But it's also his only move. Uh, you know, it, it, short of grabbing the girl's arm as she's falling down the ravine. And those are the two things he does in, in the course of mm. two issues. So, you know, I kind of have to... He, you know, he takes his chances when he does that, you know, sticking his hand into that machinery that he won't be able to use it to, you know, assist in any further rescue attempts. If Marvel Comics could have been more gory at the time, they could have, like, you know, unsewn his hand off and, he, you know, Spider-Man could have re-sewn it on with webbing or something. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Because uh, right now, Spider-Man's dumbest move is, I think, I know they make some hay out of uh, the fact that he's dizzy from his fight, but that he needs to be told to save Man-Wolf while he's falling. <laughs> his friend, yeah. I mean, he should yeah. be more on the... A lot quicker on that than, than he is. It's It's almost like he's letting him die. Right. And then he... Full-on rescues him in the Gwen Stacy method, you know? Like, he uses yeah. the Gwen Stacy method to rescue him. I'm like, oh, his bro- his back is broke. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's done. Especially since Jerry Conway's writing the story, you think, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's the dangerous move. That's the move that Jerry used to, to kill Gwen. So Yeah, like, make a scoop or something, man. Like, <laughs> What saves him isn't so much the webbing as it is the, the soft snow at the bottom that he actually right. touches. Yeah. All right. What about the friendly farewell? So this is a, t- a team up tradition, friendly or unfriendly, maybe in this case. How does this one rate? I actually loved the farewell mm-hmm. because it was a non farewell. Like I thought it reinforced Frankenstein's themes better than anything that had come up until that point. You know, they were basically sitting there talking about how hard their lives are and how awful things are for them uh, in front of this guy who has spent a significant portion of the last 200 years being chased with torches and, you know, finding friends and then accidentally killing them. And, you know, you know like, so it was just like, it, they were like super insensitive and jerks to him. And, and then like they leave and they realize, oh boy, 
boy, we weren't, that was not cool. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like, you know, that's something that, and maybe I'm going to sound like an old man, get off my lawn kind of thing right now, but I feel like those little emotional moments where the superheroes talk about their feelings, <laughs> which was big in the late 70s through the early 80s, I thought those were really good, and they really made me as a reader feel a part of that universe. So, you know, in that moment where they're talking about their feelings, basically, uh, I feel like, okay, this really happened to them. This is not just some Elseworlds alt-universe kind of thing. Like, the, they're really going to be impacted by this. And mm. I thought that was really cool. And your inner Clint Eastwood would say that th- this doesn't happen anymore? Uh, you know, I, I don't encounter it as much. Uh, and now, admittedly, I am not a monthly comic book reader anymore, uh, except of a, f- a handful of titles. But I, I know that there was a period of time, certainly, where I exited out of being a monthly comic book reader, where it was like, they don't really, we get a lot of visual representation of things. Um, We don't necessarily get quite as many thought balloons as we used to, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't really know what the inner lives of these people are like. And, and that created a separation for me. Maybe that's giving it too much heft or, or even being unaware of things. But I mean, there's some comics where that I read, um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, is it Matt, Matt Fraction's Modern Hawkeye and Sex Criminals. And, you know, I'm a big fan of a bunch of different comics where that's not the case. But I noticed that with my superhero comics, my standard superhero fare, that to me, that felt like it went away for a while. It may be back. I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. But it did go away for a while. And, and as a result, I went away. Hmm. All right. We'll uh, take a break for a couple of promos. And then we'll be back with our bonus team ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics, it's the new series by Jerry Shelley and Andrew Plug. Franken-Spider. Thrill at the creature's origins as irradiated spider venom is injected into a corpse. Stand aghast as he fights the dreaded Count Morbius, Lord of the Living Dead. Fear the retaliation of his spider bride, Mary Carolyn. Franken-Spider, it will make your flesh crawl. Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com Our final feature, the bonus team-up, in which each of us will propose a perfect, well, I don't know about perfect, uh, <laughs> an unusual, Frankenstein's monster team-up. So, Corey, uh, start us off. Uh, who do we team Frankenstein up with? So I want to see Frankenstein's monster and Thanos. Frankenstein and the Mad Titan go on a walking tour across famous burial sites of the planet Earth. Over coffee and beignet in New Orleans, <laughs> Thanos waxes poetically for his love of perfect death. Drinking beer in Munich, Frankenstein explains how his mere existence proves death is neither perfect nor all-powerful. Eating ice cream cones in Egypt, Thanos seeks to understand the powers of the soul gem, and deep in the catacombs of France, over cigarettes and Cabernet, Frankenstein posits his ability to be a completely new creature composed of pieces of other creatures calls into question the very existence of a creator and the idea of a soul. In the end, Thanos thanks Frank for his perspective, they hug, and Thanos teleports away to reconsider his whole Infinity Gauntlet thing. And maybe... Finally, after years of starts and stops, ask death 
for her phone number. I would read the crap out of that. (laughs) I was like, hmm, death and death. Okay, here we go. That would be a very pretentious book. Um, (laughs) Totally down my alley. (laughs) (laughs) Same. (laughs) Totally. I went with, uh, I don't know, I was, was, what connections can I make my head uh, about Frankenstein? And so it would be Frankenstein's Monster and Death Race 2000, because the character in that is called Frankenstein as well. So uh, it's Frankenstein's Monster. He hears about this fella tearing up the transcontinental road race, and he thinks... Man, that's my creator. So he gets in the race himself and tries to catch up. But Frankenstein read his great-grandfather's memoirs, and he's he's not letting the evils of his family's past interfere with his winning the race. So there is a connection. There's a family connection. <laughs> uh, and uh, mayhem ensues uh, with lots of callbacks to the monster legend, like there'd be lightning storms and pitchfork-wielding peasants, and uh, a leg of the race would be on an ice flow, and so on. So uh, it's it's totally meant to be completely ridiculous, and the antithesis of your own ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a good, it would be good like back to back stories though. Yeah, I mean, we need a Frankenstein's you know, like monster Frankenstein annual. <laughs> yeah, we need a Frankenstein's monster team up book. Yeah, where Frankenstein, sure. yeah, Frankenstein can team up with all sorts. That would be awesome across history because you know, the, I mean, that's already part of it. He's already he's a Victorian or. You know, even pre-Victorian character, and he's a Captain America, where mm-hmm. you know he's sort of on ice for a while, and then he wakes up in different eras. So you can have Frankenstein all over history. There's no yep. reason we can do Frankenstein's monster uh, in the time of the Guardians of the Galaxy or the Wild West. Yeah, or... Frankenstein's monster 2099. Yeah, you could do Frankenstein's monster all over and not really care about the continuity of it. Wasn't there like a 1612, like a Marvel 1612 as well? 1604, Neil... I want to say. 16... Or, yeah, Neil Gaiman had something to do with it. 1602? I don't know. I remember the the, the number. 16-something. So somebody get on that, because we don't have the political push to get our own Marvel book published. We don't. No. (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for teaming up with me, Corey. Uh, Can you remind people where they can find you on these here internets? Uh, You know, I'm on Facebook, uh, Corey Drew, and at C Drizzle on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, but I... I don't check it very often, I have to be honest. Uh, and I am a fairly frequent guest on MASHcast. MASHcast, well, that's uh, that's on our network, so it should be easy to find. A reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments, and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page, or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcast. Thanks again, Corey. Sure. Thank you for having me. As always, it's so much fun. You have a good Halloween. You too. And we'll see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a team effort.